nothing better than the feel of pen on paper. That little bit of resistance pushing back at me as I save my thoughts in a notebook. For years, I've looked to replicate that feeling on an iPad. But it's never really been the same, at least until I discovered Paperlike. The surface of the Paperlike is coated using nanodots, tiny microbeads that are designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the Apple Pencil across the screen. The latest iteration of Paperlike is manufactured in Switzerland using high-quality plastic foils that are designed for maximum picture clarity. These foils are developed exclusively for Paperlike products. Every Paperlike comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need to replace it. Within a few weeks of applying Paperlike to my iPad Pro, my Apple Pencil is getting more use than ever. Taking notes, journaling, tapping through show notes, you name it. I feel like I'm realizing the true potential of the touchscreen without sacrificing my love of pen and paper. To pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com slash BGA, click buy Paperlike, and select your iPad size. Ready to do more with your iPad? Head over to paperlike.com slash BGA to get started. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is episode 407 from Board to Book, the public domain classics. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, friends, we are back and we are talking about all of the wonderful canon of books and movies that we've made so much a part of our lives, this tremendous fandom, this tremendous context of which we build our world around, and just honestly a lot of fun stuff. And guess what? It turns out, at some point, these things became free and available for us all to use and play with in our just larger world of like fun stuff. Yeah, it's a big old sandbox of fiction out there. Um, we live in this world where everything is so hyper-managed and controlled and like, if you even look cross-eyed at Nintendo or Disney, they'll sue you into oblivion. Yes. So you forget that eventually IP material becomes available for all of us to play with. And so there are a bunch of fun things, from mostly from the 1800s, but some that are older, um, that we're allowed to, to play with. And the board game companies have done so. So we're going to go through those. Yeah, so you'll see a lot of great games that are based on a lot of properties that you all know and love very well. And then there's going to be some new properties that are going to be coming out. So, you know, hold on, because I think we're going to get hit pretty hard with all that kind of stuff coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Who knows? Because these big companies have been very successful in pushing back and making longer the copyright protections. But it seems like they're not going to do it this time. I don't know. We'll see. It doesn't seem to be the appetite to do it in Congress. So that means a bunch of stuff's finally going to start hitting the public domain. Um, we had like a big 20, 30 year gap where things kept getting protected and further protected and further protected, but now they're coming out. So, <laughs> so there, there you go. That's a thing. So we'll talk about that as well. 
But Anthony, before we get into the podcast, let's talk about what's going on with our Patreon backers. Yeah, so uh, new Patreon rewards are up and running. Everybody's in there. We're having a lot of good conversations over in Discord. So if you are a backer and you're not in Discord yet, please do join. I know a very small number of people had some issues joining. So if you do, just send me a message. I'll send you a direct link. Uh, But you should just be able to do it through Patreon. And uh, we had a a new episode of our bonus podcast go up on Friday. This is Chris, the one you recorded with Will on Kidulting. Yep. It's a lot of fun. Um, and that's like a full hour too. It's not even like bonus length. It's like full podcast <laughs> length. You guys, you guys went to town. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't dare me, man. I will do a whole, <laughs> I will do more than an hour and I did and I'll do it again, bro. I'll keep doing it. Um, <laughs> and this week, uh, it'll be my turn. So I'm going to be doing, I've written up just a brief blog post. that will be on the, the pod or up on the website here in the next week of my top 10 games of 2022. Um, we did our awards last week of the best games of the year, but these are specifically like my own personal top 10 list. So I'm going to record a podcast for that. And that'll be available this Friday for all backers at the producer level or higher. So if you haven't yet, check it out. We got a lot of fun content in there. We've got the contest, which we'll get to in a second here. We got the Discord channel. We're going to be launching our game night here in the next week or so, getting that all together, getting people into the board game arena group. Uh, so get in there. We-, we look forward to seeing you. Yeah, no, we always love, you know, playing games with you, talking more about it. And all of you out there, you're our, you know, our producers. So tell us what you like us to produce and we'll get that out there. All right, Anthony. So until then, what's going on with our friends out there? What's our question of the week? So uh, again, like last week, I have a, a two questions that I put up. Um, and, you know, this won't be every week because sometimes it's just like, oh, I have two really good questions. And sometimes one just doesn't get as many responses. So I want to get as much as I can. Um, So the first question relates directly to our topic today. Uh, And this is what book would you most like to see get a board game adaptation and why? So we're talking about books, classic books and public IPs that have been turned into games in some form or another. And so I asked everybody, what do you think? What would be fun? Um, we got a few good answers here. Um, Ladre on Discord said, as a whole... Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere universe would make an interesting game. Significant depth to story options and room for vastly asynchronous player powers. True. Uh, This is a great idea, but also like, I feel like it would turn people's brains inside out (laughs) because there's so many books, right? Like I've read most of them too, and I can't really keep it all straight because I've only read each of them maybe once. (laughs) So, um, and there are a few games based in that universe, but they're usually specific to a book or a series of books. So I'd love to see it. He's definitely all in. He does a lot of stuff with board game developers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'd be cool. Um, Antoine on Patreon said Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelazny. Uh, one of his favorite books. Um, a card get building game, obviously. These are his words. Um, can be highly asymmetrical, similar to characters of the books. Competitive and interactive between players. Um, alliances and betrayals where actions and of players in one plane impact other planes and therefore other players. Um, and specifically goes the extra step here and says, why not Ryan Lockett? Right. Mm, so yeah. the, the lore in the book should inspire the graphics and design. So therefore why not just get Ryan Lockett to do it? I'm totally down for that. Yeah. That actually sounds really cool. Um, Drew says mortal engines, a dystopian four X civ building experience with mobile civilizations. Very cool. That'd be very cool. I think that was a um, movie, right? It is. They did make a movie. It was yeah. like, like London driving around 
<laughs> eating up other little small countries and and such. Yeah, I don't know anything about it other than that scene from that trailer that I saw. Sure, but it looked interesting in the sense that I when I saw that I was like, "What? That? What is this? <laughs> What's going on here?" <laughs> it's um, just a mobile city, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So those are all from the backers. We had a whole bunch more responses over on Facebook. Um, so thank you to everybody there. Um, some just a few highlights here. <laughs> Nick mentions Red Rising. Like, yeah, I know it's been done, but it was underwhelming. So I'd like a, a good game based on that. That's true. I, I give you that. I hear you. I hear you, Nick. I was very excited for that game and then very disappointed when it wasn't very good. Um, ZJ says the never ending story. I want to ride a luck dragon. There you go. That'll be fun. Um, Jill says Gone with the Wind. Uh, so they describe a mashup of games already in there, Rococo and Battle Cry. So get your fashion game and your Civil War game, mm-hmm. some sort of economic engine angle moving from pre-war to post-war South. Nice. Uh, Scott says the player of games from E&M Banks. So the book itself has a very game-like structure and several mini games within it. This, like, when I saw this one, I was like, yes, that would be not just fun, but very meta because the game, the book is all about games. Mm. Um, Timothy says the elf stones of Shannara, just Shannara games in general. So the mm-hmm. war between the elves and the demons. Sure. Um, a few others here real quick. We have David Brin's uplift series. Um, there's a sci-fi series called hell divers mm-hmm. children of time. Uh, okay. The carpet people by Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm. So just anything Terry Pratchett. Just in general, more Terry Pratchett games. There's a few of those already. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, lots of good stuff. Thank you everybody who responded to that one. Excellent. And then our bonus question of the week, uh, which got even more answers, and I knew it would, that's why I posted it, um, because it's something that almost everybody has some kind of response for, is do you log your gameplays? Why or why not? So... There are a few people who just said, no, I don't. <laughs> Why would I not? Why would I do that? <laughs> Most people had an answer, though, that they do, right? Um, so Walker uh, in the Discord says, I've been logging plays since 2017. It's nice to have some idea of how many games I play, tracking 10 by 10s and other play challenges, and for things like Gloomhaven or Arkham Horror Card Game, where scenarios get replayed, how long a particular scenario is likely to take. Mm-hmm. Um, also a very useful tool for remembering when others happened if I remember that they happened on the same weekend, I played mm. blah, blah, blah. Right. So just being able to go through and coordinate, I do this all the time. And I'm like, I know I've played this game before. I'm pretty sure I played it the last time I played Feast for Odin. I'll go back. And play. <laughs> there it is. Okay. I did play this and I played it with you. Okay. Got it. So um, I don't remember anything. So I got to write it down. Uh, Adrian says, I log what I play, but no other things like the players or who won. It's just fun to see what I played over the year. Also, I occasionally email with another gamer who's not local and want to chat about what I played since I last wrote to them. This prevents repetitiveness. Mm. So making data that's useful for them. Sure. Uh, Igers mentions, uh, started blogging my plays in 2013, so 10 years now. Oh, my. Fantastic. Uh, It's nice to look back at my gaming habits and preferences, how they have changed over time. Now that I have a stable gaming group for the last six years, all year long, we keep a close eye on our wins and losses. And when another year ends, have a little celebration for the winner. Oh, very sweet. Yeah, that's very fun. Um, And then last but not least here, we have Tom who says five years now, really like the ability to look back on how many games and how many different folks I've played with and who I've played the most with. It's just a bonus when my wife says, I don't think I've ever played that. 
I can look and say, yeah, back on June 3rd, 2019, <laughs> we played it at home with so-and-so. And look, you actually won the game. Uh, that's uh, a dangerous game. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, Tom, you're pressing your luck, buddy. <laughs> um, a whole bunch, again, like the other one, a whole bunch more answers over on Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we won't run through all of them, but the general sense is a lot of people do track games. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do it using the BG Stats app, but other people will do it by just writing them down. Like Matt on Facebook mentions they have a three-ring binder of the games they've played and won um, in his group. Uh, some people just log them directly in Board Game Geek. Other people just have a notepad that they keep. Um, lots of different ways to do this. And, you know, it all comes down to why you'd want to. Like, I do it. I started doing it because we do this podcast. And I would forget what I'd played. So I was like, well, if I'm going to preview something, I got to remember what I did. So I got to take notes. I got to remember if I won. I got to remember how many points I got. And then I, if I'm playing the game three or four times for a review, I can say like, okay, the average high score was like 100 points or something. Mm. Um, it's helpful for me. Um, but other people I know, like Chris, I know you just take pictures, right? I take pictures. I, I think generally that, I guess my photos that I have in my phone almost become just my timeline my storyline so that i usually usually take a picture early on in the game state just so i don't forget that i actually took the picture so it reminds me that i played that game and then sometimes not always i take a game picture at the end because usually most of the games we play is you know pretty ornate so i want to see like the full look of the board sometimes where everybody ended up on on the score track you know what tableau i might have built so, I, I mean, I'm envious. I wish I did, you know, remember or use a particular app to keep track of everything. But I just I just like to have, in my life experience, the idea that at certain times I play games. So, like, I'm scrolling through my pictures and like, oh, that must have been a weekend because here's three or four games. It's dated, of course. And I can get a sense of what we played and when we played it. It's also helpful for the podcast as well. But I never went as far as to log plays. I think I might have done that for, like, five minutes a long time ago on board game geek and i just couldn't couldn't keep up with it and then there was some early apps that were like free and they just weren't great and i think board game arena is the only place that does it automatically yeah (laughs) so i'm just like hey i did things but for the life of me i never look back at the scores or necessarily what games in particular i play on there it's just it just kind of it feels good to just to know that like since i love playing games that that was part of my every day. So I look back a year from now, I'm like, oh, there was a week and I played all these games. I'm like, oh, it's really cool. I got to play those games. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I'm terrible at taking photos. I always mean to do it. Um, <laughs> like for social media, if nothing else. Sure. But like I log them though. The second we're done, I'm like, got to log this before people start putting the game away or I'm going to forget the score. So like I know I know my score in every game I've played in the, like, the last eight years, more or less. That's, <laughs> so, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's I don't know great. it. It's in an app. I can look it up. I don't know anything. (laughs) Um, All right. Awesome. So we got a bunch of great responses. Um, We got to pick a winner, though. Who do we think uh, is our our winner this week for best answer to our questions of the week? For both of them or just one? Just one. But it could be from either of the questions. Mm. So, And we we have some games we're going to be giving away. So we have a copy of X-Men United. We have a copy of Flourish. some other games and stuff. We'll send you a list. You'll get to pick something. But sure. uh, who do we think well, which, I, jumped out at you? 
I'll, I'll give you two answers, and then I'll let you pick, Anthony. So okay. I did like from the logging plays. I did like the um, one of our friends who mentioned that they keep all the scores, and then they have a celebration for the winner of winners. I thought that was really a lot of fun. I think Anthony and I participated in a somewhat I don't I don't know, I don't think it was year long. Maybe it was a couple of month long contest at the board game store in which we met. So that was kind of a similar competition where we kept track of playing. I don't know, was it? 10 different weeks of games or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. So that's, that's really cool. That was, that's really nice. And then I think uh, from the other question about the mortal engines, I think the, the concept like, like you, Anthony, I'd seen the movie. I, I remember seeing parts of the movie. I don't remember too much about it. I remember the trailer. I think the trailer was really great. I don't think the movie was as great, but I do really love the idea of a Civ game where your civilization can move. Yeah. Because honestly, that's always been the part of civilization games that really bums me out. It's like, hey, here's your starting position. I know I don't want to play this game now. <laughs> like, <laughs> do I really have to play? I'm I'm stuck between two mountains. There's no resources here. Or like you build out and then you can't build out anymore. Like if you could pick up and move, float, walk, you know, Howl's Moving Castle, whatever it takes that would be a really fun part of the game. And that would really also be a really fun part of the military aspect. It's always like moving troops across the map. It's like, what if you just took your giant castle city state and just floated over and, and, you know, shot cannons and stuff like that. So yeah, I like both of those answers a lot. Yeah. I'm with you. Like I, I, I highlighted, um, Iger's celebration, uh, post mm-hmm. as well, but like you really talked me in on the mortal engines thing though, too. Cause like, that is a part of civilization games that can be a problem. It right? is. You're, you don't have that flexibility. You have a starting point. You have all the stuff. You have the asymmetry. And that's yes. what you're stuck with. And nothing changes. Nothing changes. The board state never changes, really. You just kind of creep out a little bit. Yeah. Like, And it's just kind of it's kind of a bummer because that's not really how civilizations work. They yeah. grow. They expand. They shrink. They, you know, they, they, they move. They migrate. There's different mm-hmm. rivers, different storms. There's... And you're just like, and I'm here. And that's where I am for the whole game. So I guess it helps when you where you're sitting at the table, at least. Right. <laughs> My civilization's on this corner. I will sit here. Therefore, good luck, everybody. Yeah. The worst part is when like everybody sits down and then you draft locations. Oh, like, no. All the way over there. <laughs> I gotta stand up every time I do anything. Yeah, could could you move my pieces over there? I don't I don't wanna get up again yeah. and move the move the things. So yeah. All right. Well I'm with you then. I say we go with Drew's. Um that was a nice conversation about that. And uh yeah, I would love to see that game. So Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a good one. So Drew, congratulations. You are the winner of our question of the week contest this week. I will reach out to you via Patreon and uh get your information. Um but again, every week we'll be doing this, so answer the question there's a chance if we read your answer and that's the one that's selected that you could uh, win a awesome board game related prize if thanks you're a patreon backer yeah no thanks everybody for participating thanks everybody for sharing and thanks everyone for keeping the conversation going if you'd like to hit us up again patreon.com but facebook twitter pretty much we're everywhere these days so if, if you find some place that we're not let us know and we'll show up randomly and really spook the heck out of some people but nonetheless we love to keep the conversation going, getting board gaming out there. So share us with other people. All right, Anthony, so that's what's going on with our friends. Let's get on to talking about board games. So what's our acquisition disorders? All right. So uh, for me, the first one up is Green Planet, Powerline and Future Energy. This is a 
two game Kickstarter from Queen Games. It just went up. Uh oh. I, I know. <laughs> they do this. They're like, you have to buy two games. I'm like, I don't want to buy two games. <laughs> um, you'll buy two games and you'll like it. You're like, all right. Yeah, I will probably like it. So it's just fine. come on, guys. So this one's interesting, though, because Powerline was already on GameFound like last fall, I think. Um, sure. It didn't do super well, I don't think, but no. it was already up there. They already ran through a campaign. So this is a Dirk Hen game, um, dice selection and movement game about building out power lines um, using clean energy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, future energy, we talked about this in our preview episode um, a couple weeks ago, is a reimplementation of Pioneers, um, which is a game that released alongside Merlin, and therefore nobody remembers it. But it was, again, one of those things like, you have to back two games. Uh, like, um, and I should say, just because, you know, for clarity's sake, you don't have to back two games. But if you're going to back one, you might as well back the other one because then it's cheaper and the shipping is roughly the same. Oh, come on, so, man. All the cool kids are doing it, bro. Just back both yeah, games. Back both games. Why not? <laughs> um, you have all the monies. Yeah, all the, all the monies. So... Powerline, I, I might have even talked about this one before because it does look interesting. Um, sure. But it's expensive. All these things yeah. are expensive. So it's Dirk Hen, designer of Alhambra, which I love. Yes. Um, it's dice drafting, effectively, right? You're going to have all these different dice and you're going to take these different actions, moving your workers out to um, build the power lines on the player board. And then you kind of complete those lines from various actions and score points. Pretty straightforward. There's various objectives you're trying to complete, but it looks simple enough. Like it looks like a game I could play with my family. The artwork on the board, it's Queen Games-ish, but it's very green. It's very Enviro-conscious. Um, I mean, I don't know if the production of the game is, but <laughs> the, the, the visuals are. Um, Future Energy is uh, a map of Europe, right? So again, original game Pioneers, designed by Emmanuel Ornella. And now you're moving around the map and building out different infrastructure for uh, Future Energy rather nice. than like moving your little pioneers around and buying and selling stuff. So pioneers was actually a very fun game that just went super under the radar. Um, and cowboy stuff, if it's not amazing, tends to just be kind of bland. It's not pretty to look at. Uh, so I'm excited for this, just for them to bring it back and it's bright and colorful and it's interesting theme. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's cool to see these themes hitting games. Um, it's not super complex either. Again, another one I could play with my family. So I don't, I say all of this, I don't think I'm going to back this personally, just because it is over $100 for these two games that are neither of which is going to be like on our game of the year list next year. But Mm. um, both of them look solid. And I know Pioneers is good. So I'm, I feel like Future Energy is a safer bet. But I'm just glad they exist. And, you know, if I felt like my backing would make them exist more, maybe I would, but it is already backed. So it's going to, they are going to exist. And it's Queen Games. So They've already produced everything. They just want your money before they (laughs) ship it. So, um, but it's good stuff. Like it just collectively, you know, you want to support new, interesting, different themes that aren't just about farming or um, colonization. So that, that by itself is a good thing. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And queen games has a history of just knowing how to do all the Kickstarter stuff now delivering it. It's a little different story, but you know, mm. you know, <laughs> where's saying. my games stuff on just, just waiting on some felds. Just saying, bro, just, just waiting on some felds. Uh, you know, if you could just drop them by, that'd be great. Cause you know, we backed them a long time ago. 
<laughs> yeah, no, these these are both very interesting dynamic kind of gameplays, and that's what's really fun about this. The theme is an added bonus on top of everything else. So if you if you're interested, definitely check it out. All right, well, I want to talk about something I've probably talked about so long. In fact, that the designer himself was like, "Yeah." You remember when you talked about this? And I'm like, yeah, I talked about this for a long time. So I want to talk about a game. It's it's not out yet, but it'll be coming out in what I guess they, they're calling Q4. So at the end of the year, fingers crossed again. Um, this is the new re-implementation of Tales of Arabian Nights way back in 2009. So this is how long I've been talking about it, since 2009. So Arabian Nights was a really interesting game. And it was this kind of like open world concept where you and your other competitors would travel the world and as you went to different spots, you would have encounters. And there was this giant matrix book that you kind of flipped through and based on the numbers on the map, based on your character, you read a scenario and then you reacted to the scenario and some good stuff, but typically more than likely it was bad stuff would happen to you and then you just kind of roll with it. So it wasn't really, it was more of a game experience than like gameplay. Like you could technically win, but it wasn't about winning whatsoever. It was just about a lot of stuff happening to you. So it was kind of the original choose your own adventure board game before now they actually have legitimate versions of that. So it was, it was fun. It was a big, big sprawling game. And then it went out of print with the exception of a couple of copies that they kept printing just because they wanted to keep the license. And the reason why they wanted to keep the license is because in Q4, they'll be releasing Tales of the Authorian Knights. So King Arthur and all of his knights will somewhat be present in this new game that's based on Tales of Arabian Nights. And this is from our friend Andrew Parks. We've talked, he's been on the podcast previously. And it is, again this kind of whole world, there's 400 different experiences that you can have as far as moving across the map and interacting with different creatures and people. And it brings in all that Arthurian legend into play, which is lush with a lot of different stories, a lot of different characters. And you'll also have all the class. So, so again, we're talking about like IPs being available. So Arthurian legends, Lancelot, Merlin, and Arthur, and Morgana the Fey, and just all that kind of fun stuff. So um, eventually at the end of the year, this will be out from Eric Goldberg and Andrew Parks. And I'm excited. It looks great. The artwork is up. Board Game Geek. You can take a look at this. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be coming out from WizKid. So really excited. Yeah, this is amazing. Like, I honestly, at a certain point, I'm just like, this isn't happening. <laughs> so it's happening <laughs> back in my head. And Andrew Parks so on Board Game Geek, someone's like, how long has this been in the works? He said 15 years. Yeah. Basically since Arabian Nights came out. This has been something they've been working on. Mm-hmm. So it's just the fact that they stuck with it for so long. Like, I'm psyched. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, it looks really good. Artwork looks great. Ella DeCruz, uh, Medusa Dollmaker, and Micro Panisi. So a lot of great artists on this. Definitely something to check out. It's probably something you have not played, something like this. So whether you get to the table or whether you pick it up, I think it's something to enjoy. All right, Anthony. So that's all the games that are hitting our acquisition disorder. Now let's talk about the games that actually hit the table this week. So let's talk about our at the table, and we'll let people know if those games are a buy and they should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and they should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and they should avoid them. Or if those games are, in fact, the dreaded burn. So what do you have up for us this week? 
All right. So this one, y'all, you already all probably know the rating because it was our game of the year. <laughs> so we did this backwards. Uh, spoiler. Spoilered. Um, we spoiled it a week ago. Uh, War of the Ring, the card game. And just by nature of our publishing schedule, we did our game of the year awards last week and we're reviewing <laughs> this this week. But so you say it's a play. You say it's at least yeah, a play. It's a, it's a medium play. Which There you go. No, nice. Nice. No, buy this game. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> we'll work right backwards. We'll work it. So first yeah. off, buy the game. Yes. And now Anthony, talk about the game. Yes. So game's amazing. We gave it an award. Buy. Uh-huh. Now here's why you should buy it. Um, so this is from Ares Games, and it's inspired by War of the Ring, the board game, which is my number one game of all time. It's been there for basically the whole time we've been doing this, um, which is just a brilliant, brilliant, sprawling, asymmetrical two-player game in which the free peoples take on the armies of Mordor and try to get the ring to Mount Mordor to destroy it. Um, and so it, it involves dice and cards and miniatures and the sprawling board and all this amazing stuff. It's just such an amazing experience to play through. So when they said they were going to make a card game out of that, I was like, ah, okay. All right. <laughs> Grain of salt. We'll see if it works. Um, because there's so much going on, right? How do you boil all that down into just two or 300 cards in a box, right? And that's all it is. There's nothing else in here except a handful of tokens. And the tokens really just represent things that are already on the cards. Um, so the way the game is designed, because there are a few ways to play it, you have four different decks, right? One represents the armies of Mordor. One is Saruman and his forces. Then you have um, the hobbits and the, the humans and the, the wizards, and the dwarves and the elves, and they're all split up. Um, and t- so you have four different decks, two on the free people side and two on the, the dark old bad guy side. Um, and ideally you're playing the game with four people, just a straight four people, right? Each person's going to play with one deck of cards. Um, but there is a way to play with two. There's actually two ways to play with two players. We played the game both those ways, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but mechanically speaking, what you're doing is you're going to have a hand of cards and you are going to, on your turn, you can play a card. And whenever you play a card, you have to cycle another card. Cycling is their word for discarding, but it's important because you have a cycle deck and then you have a separate deck where it's permanently out of the game. So the cycles will come back into your deck. The, what is it? Exterminate or ex- expedite? I forgot the word. Some cards are dead, dead forever. They're not coming back into the game. Um, and you, you got to get used to that. That's like a pretty significant mechanic where you're just burning cards off the deck throughout the game and they're, you're just never going to get to use them. And that's fine. So within your hand, every round, you'll be to decide what you want to play out and you can play it to one of the battlegrounds or paths. So there'll be two cards out in the middle of the board that represent a battle, a fight where one side is defending and the other side is attacking. And then there's the path where you have Frodo and co trying to, to move further towards um, Mount Doom. So the, what cards you play and when depends on like a hundred different things. We could probably talk about this game, the whole podcast, if we wanted to get into like tactics and strategy, but the basic idea is you want to win, right? Because if you commit something to a location as the quote unquote attacker, and they have to attack, meaning that there's something they're defending, that card is gone. You lose it for the whole game, right? They're exterminated. So 
you want to make sure that if you're going to commit, that it's worth committing, right? For that reason, you have this option when you play a card, you don't have to play it to the location, you can play it to your reserve. So you play it down, it's exhausted, it doesn't do anything that round in terms of like, you can't then move it to a location later. But in future rounds, you'll have it available there. You'll have a queue of different cards that you could put out to those locations as free actions. Um, almost all these cards have some kind of bonus action on them. So like Galadriel lets you draw extra cards and cycle them out. Um, the the school all have some kind of extra additional option. Like usually it's like cycle this card to deal an extra damage or to add an extra token to this location. So every single card has something like that. So tactically you got to think about where they're going and when they're available and how you can use them. But really it all comes down to when do you commit stuff? How do you commit it? And can you handle the loss of those things if you do commit, right? Like one of the games we played, the two player fellowship game, uh, I committed a lot of stuff trying to win a battleground in the middle of the game, but I emptied out a lot of my reserve. And then we got to the last couple rounds of the game and I just didn't have enough stuff left over to commit out. Like I should have just given up that location, not bothered with it, continue to build up my forces. And then in a future round, I'd be able to go in a little bit harder. Um, those are things that you'll learn as you play the game. Now, in terms of how it plays with two versus four, or you can even play with three. When you play with two, instead of having, I mean, you could play multi-handed, but there's a lot going on here and it's a lot to keep track of. It's a relatively complex card game. Um, you have to blend all that stuff together, right? So if you play the full, like the dual version, you just play both decks together. I don't think it's very balanced. Um, and maybe that's just because I lost thoroughly, but mostly you just like certain cards are meant to come out at certain times, right? So if you're playing to the path, the paths are numbered to represent different points in the trilogy. Certain cards can only be played in certain numbers, right? So if you have, like, if you pull the Balrog, for example, they can only be played on numbers four or five on the path. So if you pull them early in the game, you'll play them to your reserve, you'll wait, and then your opponent knows you have that card. If you pull it after round five, then it doesn't do anything on the path. And maybe you just commit it to the battleground or you use it to, to cycle. Um, so if you draw a bunch of cards that you can't do anything with in that dual version, which is what happened to me, you could go two or three rounds and just not accomplish anything. And then the game's over because the game ends when one player has 10 or one side has 10 points or more higher than the other side. Or if you get to the end of nine rounds, um, so, like, if somebody just runs away with it, the game will end early. Now, the other way you can play with two players is the fellowship mode, and that will give you a list of cards that go into the decks. So, it balances it out for you. Um, it creates basically different deck combinations and specific locations and battlegrounds to put in there. Um, that was really fun as a two-player experience, but it did feel like a little incomplete because you're only going two-thirds of the way through the game. Um the book itself even mentions like, this is a good beginner. This is a good way to introduce the game, right? To get to know it, to teach people the game because it's basically programmed in a certain way. Like these cards are here. These are going to be useful for you. These locations are here. They're balanced in a certain way to keep the game tight. So it's not likely to be like a runaway. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll see more decks like that, either from people on BGG or directly from Ares. We're like, oh yeah, put these cards together. And now you have the two towers scenario. Um, that'd be cool. But overall, the experience, you know, if you go on BGG, they'll say best with four. I would agree. 
because everybody has that deck that is balanced for that particular grouping. You're not going to have all these cards that you can't use come out at a certain point. And when you're cycling your deck, you'll get through it once or twice as you thin it. Um, unlike just a, a head-to-head two-player duel. But overall, it was just a fantastic experience, right? It's clever. It's quick moving. Um, everything has value. There's no like junky cards in the deck. Like every time you look at your hand, unless it's a card you really can't use for a few rounds, like these are all good and I have to discard at least half of them, right? And sometimes you just lose a card or like you have to eliminate a card from the game. You're like, oh man, <laughs> like... So I could kill something that's already out or remove something from my hand, or you can just remove one from the top of your deck and hope it's not good. Um, So lots and lots of interesting decisions to make in a game where the complexity is not on the surface, no matter how long they made the rulebook, it's emergent from the different systems as they come together, right? At any point in time, you're looking at five or six cards to make a decision. That's like, you don't have a ton of cards in your hand, but what you do with them, the order in which you do it and how they blend together is so so important so war of the ring the card game obviously based on our word last week is a buy um we love this game and uh, i'm just i'm so glad it worked right like i didn't think they would slap this name on a game and then have it be bad but i was also worried it would just be fine but Mm. it's actually amazing which is what i was hoping for yeah i mean again if you have not played war of the ring the board game it's immense it's epic it's got, you know, troops on a map, but it also has a hidden trail kind of mechanic on top of which. And then there is certain conditions as far as political allegiances, and you, there's endless numbers of way to play it. There's just a lot to it. So again, like I talked about on the awards, it's, it's a very bold, you know, situation to actually bring out a card version of that. I think it's laughable, honestly. You know, again, if, if it wasn't for Mary's games, if it wasn't for the same designers, you could just honestly laugh these, you could laugh this game, just not even open the box. You just laugh at it. You just be like, a, a deck of cards versus the board game, which is like one of the grail games of all time, has all these troops, has all these cards, has all this artwork, can't possibly be good. And it's exceptional. And that's surprising. And I think you said it, Anthony, one of the things was when you play any number of card games, deck builders, and especially these kind of skirmish games, you always have trash cards in your hand. Like, it's there's always a better card, but there's typically trash cards in it. In playing this game, all the game, all the cards had value. There was no card in my hand or in the deck that was just like, and that's junk. It's like, no, this, this card has a lot of utility to it. And even as you mentioned, too, Maybe not immediately, but very soon. So like when you play Terraform Mars, you get this giant hand of cards and you're like, this is exciting. I can't build half of these cards until late game and I just got to get rid of them. But this, everything could be played that round or the next round. There was no card that I ever had at any point that you couldn't play right away or right then. And I think that's a that's a tremendous success there. On top of which, and I don't think we've talked too much about it or we may just hinted on it, that it's almost nearly impossible to find team games anymore. Like it's, you get co-op games, but competitive team games. Like we talk about Tishu where it's like, there's, there's teams, two teams of two. So it's great to have a four player card game where you get to play with a buddy and then experience that game together versus another team. That's a lot of fun. I think Concordia recently had, 
their Venus expansion where you could play this kind of version of that, but it was a little more difficult to get out. Here, you have your own faction. There's no alpha gaming here. You get to play out your faction. You get to play out the locations. And you get to have a lot of fun. It's And again, I think I mentioned this also during the awards. It's a simple game to play. There's nothing overly complicated about it. You know, you're drawing cards, you're cycling cards, you're discarding cards for good. And then you're just playing cards to, to the tableau based on whatever you could do back and forth. And that's it. Again, and it's fun. And it's incredible that a game like that would be fun. And it'd be an exceptionally good price point. They could have also came out with this game and like charged crazy amounts of money for it. And they didn't. So thank you to Aries Games for producing a great game. And I know you purchased it, Anthony. I will be purchasing it soon enough. And yeah, this is great. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's like this was my number one most anticipated beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And thankfully they came through. Um, and I don't know what situation got them connected with Ian Brody, the designer of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who's made Quartermaster General and all those games, which are very good, but very different genre and taking an existing property. Like, I don't know if he brought it to them or if they brought it to Who knows? But I'm glad it worked because it's awesome. Very much so. So, yeah, check it out. All right. The game that I got to my table was a review copy that I got from Smirk and Dagger Games. This is The Night Cage. This is a game that was on Kickstarter at the end of 2021. And I just recently had an opportunity to play the game. It's great. So the Night Cage is a co-op game, but it's horror-themed. And I'm typically not a horror-themed type of person, but I do have people in my life who like that kind of horror theme. So I was like, you know what? I actually will play this. It's a one-to-four-player game in which you are a prisoner that's trapped in this Night Cage, this completely blackened... I guess, labyrinth that constantly is changing as you move. And as a prisoner, the only thing that you have with you is a candle. So the candle in the game is your little player meeple token. And as the game progresses, you are trying to find keys and find the doorway in order to escape the night cage. Pretty simple. Now here's the challenging part. You start off in the complete dark, but your candle will illuminate the passageways from which you sit. So you get to see around you and then make the decision to travel to those areas. That would be fine if there weren't horrifying creature tiles in your way. And that's where things get kind of scary throughout. So again, it's the whole board and all the tiles and the metal keys that come into the game, which are very nice. Everything's in black and white. So it kind of gives you that really kind of like shadow kind of perspective to this. And The creatures are kind of Cthulhu-esque creatures. And basically what you're doing is moving, again, to get the key to get out, and you're encountering creatures throughout. So when you do encounter a creature, again, depending on the type of creature, you are basically losing your light, losing your candle, you get scared, and now all you can see is just a tile that you're standing on and you're not sure what's next on the other side. As monsters pop out, And as you cross their paths, they trigger. So they might not just only hit you, but they might hit other people in the labyrinth. Now, that takes tiles away from this giant candle stack. When the candle stack runs out, and if you have not gotten to the exit with the key for each player, the game's over. So it's interesting because the candle stack has the tiles, 
And as you move, the tiles come out and you get to make those decisions. So you don't want to walk towards a creature necessarily, but now you might be facing one. And then in the advanced game, there are advanced creatures which you can deal with in order to make the game a little more dangerous, a little more scary throughout. And there's also these nerve tokens. So like if you just stand still and you're going to have the nerve to just kind of fight it out, that kind of gives you some special abilities in the game, which kind of, you know, opens things up a little bit. So as far as the decision making is concerned, you're kind of stuck with what comes out through the tiles. But you do have an opportunity to strategize with other players about how close you're going to get, how much candlelight you're going to share. But remember, if you're very close, monsters hit everybody. So it's a challenging type of situation, but it's a situation in which you can win the game if you're lucky enough. Now, typically games like this would be, I would kind of classify just purely as a game experience and might just give it a dodge because you're not making any tremendous numbers of decisions. You're just reacting to situations. But I think for the Night Cage, it works. It works that you are dropped into this dungeon area, and as you go through the dungeon, things happen and you try to adapt to the best of your ability. The game looks creepy. If you back the Kickstarter or you pick up some of the extra things, you can pick up like little people that walk through. There's a soundtrack that goes through. And again, it gives that kind of Cthulhu-esque sense of like, there is something cosmic and horrifying happening here. And yet at the same time, there's nothing grotesque about the game. There's nothing like shocking, you know, like you're going to freak or flip out about. It's just the idea that the giant candle of tiles is running out and you got to get to the exit as quickly as possible. And you have to try to manage danger as much as possible. I like the fact that other tiles come in the game so you can actually make it harder, but you can play on the easy mode as well. And even on easy mode, it's very dangerous. So Night Cage gets a play for me. I think it's something that, you know, you can get a, a bunch of people at the table. And it's very simple because you're either standing or moving. And that's pretty much it. That's Night Cage. Yeah, I had fun with this. I played it last summer uh, visiting some friends in Pittsburgh. And like visually, it was a complete turnoff for me. But mechanically, it's... I just love the idea that things are changing, right? Like once once something's out of the light, the tiles go away. Once and then you move back to that space, it's a different tile. So it just like thematically, it really gives you that sense of like what is going on here. <laughs> like it works really well for that. Um, yeah, everything else you said, I also agree. It's a little random, but uh, it was a fun experience. Yeah, it's definitely random. I just think the only reason why it doesn't drop off or fall <laughs> fall like like in the game so much is because it fits with the theme. Right. I would have liked to seen 3D representations of the monsters and of the characters that were available in the base game, but that being said, it's reasonably priced. All right, Anthony, so that's everything that's hitting our table. Let's get on to the feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about From Board to Book, the games that are blessed to be in the public domain. So, Anthony, why don't you tell us about this list? So, yeah, these are... All the different classical books, most of them from the 19th century, some a little bit older, that um, are in the public domain, meaning that nobody has to pay a licensing fee to use a character that is very familiar to all of us, right? So, you know, if somebody wanted to go make a board game about Harry Potter or Star Wars, they'd have to get permission and then pay money (laughs) to do that. Um, For these characters and these books, you don't have to. You have permission and ability to just use them as you would like. 
Um, and it's in your own best interest to keep it as closely skewed to the theme as possible because that's what people are looking to buy. So we've picked out um, a good number of these games that use public domain uh, book characters and settings, and we'll, we're going to run through them. All right. So first up, we have Fury of Dracula from Dracula. So, <laughs> that Ram guy, he's, he, he's not just a he's not just a bloodsucker. He's also a great game too. So right. Well, the game's okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, yes, but it also depends on which edition because there's endless numbers of editions here. Right. They're up to four now, and I think they're all out of print. So <laughs> have fun with that. Um. I think I had it for a little while. I had like the, the Fantasy Flight version before it went out of print. And then I played it a couple times at a friend's house. I was like, oh, I don't actually like this. So I sold it because I was like, people want it. It's out of print. Um, it's a one versus many hidden movement type of game. So you're all trying to find Dracula. Dracula's trying to stay hidden. If you get in a fight, <laughs> you got to try to stay alive because Dracula will mess you up. Hey, he's um, an introvert. He doesn't want to be yeah. bothered by all these people just bugging him all the time. Yeah. But it also has this thing where you could just never run into each other, which is cool for Dracula. They're like, I, I stayed away where everybody else is like, what did we just do for three hours? We just ran in circles and picked up weapons. <laughs> I actually did that in a game where I don't know if it was a card. This, this is many years ago. We're talking about 2017 and they were all coming towards me, all the hunters. And I had a card or a special ability that let me move. I don't know, like double the amount of spaces. And as they crouched, they came in, I saw it. I saw the, the pathway out and I kind of let them come in and I just blew past them. And then for the rest of the game, they could not find me. <laughs> they were like, they, and by that point, like, especially towards the end of the game, they were like, they were like walk, walking Terminators. And I was just like, bye. <laughs> just like, they're like, you know, you could, you could fight the, the hunters. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> just not doing that. Nope. I know you're all mad right now, but I'm having a blast. So That's right. <laughs> I've been on the other side of that, chasing someone in circles for the whole night. Anyways, it's people love it. It's a good ha Halloween game. It's a good hidden movement game. And it does draw on a lot of the elements of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Absolutely. Uh, next up on the list, we have Robinson Crusoe Adventures on the Cursed Island. This is, of course, based on Daniel Defoe's 1719 novel, Robinson Crusoe, about guy getting stranded on an island <laughs> trying to get off of there I mean, go um, no, yeah right <laughs> um so this is from ignacy trevichek and uh, portal games and it's a cooperative storytelling type of game um that has a whole bunch of different scenarios some of which are from that original book many of which are not like king kong is not in that original book um <laughs> but that adds a lot to it right we have a good baseline we have a character that we know um and then we build on that over the course of the game. So whether you have the original edition with the incomprehensible rules or the 2012 re-release or the 2015 re-release or the new version that they're still working on getting out, um, the core gameplay here is really quite good uh, with the, you, you draw a card, you do a thing, that card goes back into the deck and it's going to depend on what you did the first time, what comes out the next time. Such a cool mm -hmm. idea that I would love to see more of. Yeah, and just like Dracula, this does a really good job of like holding the theme up and really feel like you're playing the theme out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's very thematic. Mm -hmm. um, it works quite well in that. Absolutely. Um, all right, next up we have Friday, also based on Robinson Crusoe. Um, but this one is a solo-only card game versus the big sprawling cooperative game. Um, it's from Friedman Freeze. 
And so in this game, you are playing as Friday, Robinson Crusoe's partner uh, in the book, and you are trying to help Robinson Crusoe survive. So mm-hmm. you draw cards, you play cards, you discard cards, you're trying to build up your, basically make your deck more efficient by the time you get to the end and you have to face the pirate ships. Uh, it's thematically sure a little bit in there, but mostly it's just like a card shuffling puzzle, which Freeman Freeze has a lot of. Um, this was like one of my early entries into solo gaming and I've since kind of grown out of it, but I still have a copy somewhere. Uh, it, it is, if you're trying to get into solo games, it's inexpensive, it's easy to play and there's a lot of different levels to it. So I do still recommend it. Um, if you're looking for a game based on Robinson Crusoe, do the other one. Yeah, this has, this is everything in the kitchen sink. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it covers a lot of stuff. It, it just yeah. does just a little bit. Uh, all right, next up we have Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, and there's four of these, so, you know, pick your poison. Um, the original one, The Thames Murders and Other Cases, came out in 1982. Uh, it won the Spiel des Jahres and has been in and out of print a million times since then. Um, but when they brought it back into print a few years ago, they then released a few other versions of this. So we have the Baker Street Irregulars, we have Jack the Ripper and West End Adventures. We have Carlton House and Queens Park. Some of these bring in old stuff um, and repackage it, and some of them are just new. So the the end result is there's like 20 or so different mysteries you can go through. Um, In these books, or in these games, what you're doing is you are playing as the Baker Street Irregulars, and you're trying to solve these crimes better or as good as Sherlock Holmes will. So he's not necessarily a character that you're playing with. You're kind of you're working together with him or against him to try to do as much as you can. So you get all this information. You look through the newspaper. You look through the book. You solve the different things, and at the end, you look to see how many different questions you can answer effectively um, with some variations in different modes, and you know, compare your score to Sherlock Holmes's score. Um, it's a lot of fun. Like it's, I've I've played these pretty much solo or with one other person because sure. You don't need a bunch of people, but the more people you have, the easier it is because you have more people looking at this stuff, but the, also the longer it takes. So keep that in mind. Mm. No, it's great to have. I mean, especially with this IP, there's so much to do with it. And this really kind of brings it Holmes. Ha. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. Ha. Ah. Yeah, <laughs> I'll acknowledge that. There you go. And, and then we move on. No. There we go. <laughs> Um, next up is another Sherlock Holmes game, Watson and Holmes. This is from 2015 in Ludanova. Um, this is a another deduction game. So uh, in this game, you're working as Watson. So a little bit closer to Holmes. You're still not playing as Sherlock Holmes because I don't. I feel like people maybe think that just wouldn't be fun because you can't be as smart as Conan Doyle shows Sherlock to be. So you have to be all the people around him in these games. Yeah, it's true. Um, but yeah, it's it's a clever little auction bidding deduction murder mystery type of game. Um, there's a bunch of these, honestly. If you like Sherlock Holmes, there's like a dozen games. We could have just done one of these on that. Yeah, um, this, this IP's these, been available for a while now. Yeah, yeah. Except like certain parts of it aren't. Like from mm. the latter years, it's, it's a weird thing. <laughs> um, next up, we have Nemo's War. So this is based on Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, about Captain Nemo and the Nautilus. So in the game, you are piloting the Nautilus um, around and trying to do all the... Th- the game is actually designed and structured to follow the 
story beats from the book um, with some flexibility in terms of like who you fight and where you go, and what treasure you pick up. It's solo only. Um, the more recent versions of the game, the second edition and the deluxe edition allow you to play with more than one person, but it was designed as a one player game by victory point games. So it's a very big sprawling, relatively long solo experience. It is very good. Uh, and the newer versions, it's, you know, tool artwork, it's, beautiful rent beautiful rendering all these expansions too there's like four or five expansions for it just a lot of content here if you like this ip and you like this type of game nice next up we have the adventures of robin hood this one came out in 2021 from michael menzel um this was on our list uh for best family game because um, mm-hmm. it came out in the u.s here in 2022 and it's a cooperative game in which you play different members of robin hood's band of merry men and you go around um into the city and the castle and the forest and you accomplish various different things using this little um this book that the the game comes with this little hardbound book that kind of guides you through these different missions it's lighter than andor um which is menzel's other series of games it's more accessible my kids really enjoyed it everything's printed there on the board so it just it all flows and works very smoothly it's a fantastic cooperative family game and it has a lot of stuff from the old adventures of robin hood um that have been collected over the years so uh, if you're a fan of the ad ip or if you're looking for a good family game that's you know different than some of the other ones out there this is really good yeah it's a great game and a great value i mean just tremendous tremendous game oh my gosh yeah yeah there's an expansion coming out this year that we will absolutely be covering when it comes out um the other robin hood game is much, much, much less thematic, but it's very popular, so we put it on the list. Um, Sheriff of Nottingham. So, uh, in this game, you are <laughs> the Sheriff of Nottingham, and you're trying to collect as much taxes as you can, because Prince John is coming. So, it's... I don't know, it's a betting and bluffing, hand management type of game. You're just trying to get the most stuff. It's <laughs> so, wacky. It's a wacky it's, game. It's a wacky party type of game. It's very popular. Um, it's been in big box stores for years. And mm-hmm. like it's fun to play. But if you're looking for a Robin Hood game, I don't, I don't know. Other than the artwork, none of that's really here. It's an element of the Robin Hood kind of story, right? So that's, yeah. that's, that's about it, yeah. Tax collection. <laughs> Who doesn't uh, want to play a game about tax collection? Come on, kids. <laughs> gather around so the wacky. table. Let's let's collect some taxes. <laughs> yeah. Let's fund the government Yay! through corruption. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on, we have Treasure Island. So this game came out in 2018. Uh, it's designed by Mark Pakian. And the artwork's been Vincent Dutrois, which is great. Um, Pakian also des- designed Yamatai, which is among my favorite games. So this was a game that... Um, I had a lot of fun tracking down because it was hard to find actually for a while. Sure. Uh, it's a bluffing and adventure game. So one player is Long John and you're trying to mislead everybody else as you search for the treasure. Uh, so it's it's not really one versus many. It's more like hidden role deduction type of stuff. But you're, you're trying to find the treasure, right? While one person tries to lead you in the wrong direction. It's a really cool idea and it captures the theme of that book really well. Not bad. Uh, Abomination, the heir of Frankenstein, uh, came out from Plaid Hat Games in 2019. And this is a economic-ish Euro game um, with a lot of storytelling elements to it in which you are going out and trying to 
collect the pieces that you need um, to build your monster. So you are managing decomposing resources. So as you get these resources, they do decompose over time because they're <laughs> organic. The game is gross. This is Ugh. a good horror game, but it's a well-made, engaging game that really draws in a lot of the interesting elements of Frankenstein. Um, like focusing on the creation of the monster, which is really what that book is about. It's not yes. about the monster as much as the person who made it. Um, so, but just know that like going into it, this game's not for everybody. Like you're looking through the, the pieces, you're looking at the artwork and you're like, oh, gross. You know, <laughs> and if that's your immediate response, you probably don't want to sit down for two to three hours and play this. So, Gotcha. Uh, all right. Three Kingdoms Redux. This is the game about the um, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the Han Dynasty, and, and all the different history that goes along with that. I'm not even going to try to, to summarize it because I'm sure I'll get it wrong and embarrass myself but um you it's a three player only game where each player is going to represent one of the three power blocks at the time so the way the woo and the shoe um very interesting engaging uh approach to like there's some common elements but there's really it's about like managing your resources and building things up and managing where things are going and when you place your generals out because they all have different powers and different levels that'll impact everybody else it's perfectly balanced for three players. It's very complex and it's very long. So it's hard to get to the table effectively. Like I have it. I've played it a couple times. I have not played it in many years because you need the right three people and you need a good four or five hour chunk of time. But it is a very good experience if you can get it to the table um, and just really captures a lot of that time and period well. Um, so yeah, Three Kingdoms Redux. I love this game. I was surprised I did. And it's, it's really fantastic. And you have all the actual, I guess, for the story and the history, the generals mm-hmm. in there. It's a lot of fun. It's weirdly a lot of fun. It's like, it's like, it's, it's wrapping your head around the theme and then finding that the theme really plays itself out quite well in the gameplay is just always so surprising. And it's great to see. Yeah, no, this, this one's a blast. I, w- I wish it wasn't so inaccessible. It's, it's the problem that I have. With it, it is. And, and again, I, again, I, I do like my experience was it, it was worth it, but this is such a uh, a rich IP here that I really wish there was more games in this area because I, yeah, I followed a lot of this and just yeah, this is this is the one, this is the one game that kind of like is known for that that three kings kingdoms. Yep, yep. Um, all right, so moving on back to Western fiction because that's. A lot of these games are from uh, over here. Um, <laughs> we have Jekyll versus Hyde, which is a two-player only trick-taking game um, that plays out the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. So it's asymmetrical trick-taking in which you have Dr. Jekyll trying to resist Mr. Hyde's attacks and Mr. Hyde trying to overcome Dr. Jekyll. Clever, unique, interesting. Two-player trick-taking in general is a lot of fun. Um, and not a lot of games pull it off very well. So this one's also on Board Game Arena. So you can play it without having to find a copy. <laughs> That's nice for once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, several of these games we've mentioned are out of print. So sorry about that. Yeah. Um, Paint the Roses, next up from North Star Games uh, and Ben Goldman. This is, uh, well, Paint the Roses, right? You're off with their heads. It's from Alice <laughs> in Wonderland. So it's a cooperative logic deduction game. Uh, in which you are 
acting as the royal gardeners and trying to finish the palace grounds um, based on what the Queen of Hearts is telling them to do. So and if you mess up, off with their heads. Uh, it's We've joked about this, like having a game about decapitation that's a family game. It's kind yeah. of funny. Um, yeah, funny is a word. But <laughs> it is from, you know, Alice in Wonderland. It's a children's property. Um, but it's... It's a clever little cooperative game with a lot of deduction elements. Like mechanically, it does it's a perfect balance, I think, of complexity and engaging mechanics for like for a family. Mm-hmm. Um, how much it draws in from Alice in Wonderland, it's like really very specifically that part of the book. And even within that part, like that specific location of that part of the book. But um, it does draw in a lot. <laughs> Take your word for it, man. I'll take yeah. Word. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And last but not least, I had to end on this because it's the funniest one. Um, 18 Lilliput. This is from Lonnie Orgler of all those train games fame. Um, and it's an 18xx game, but it's a shorter, lighter gateway style approach to 18xx. Right. So it you're trying to build up a railroad network. You're trying to get richer than everybody else, but it's card based. Um, so the game is less expensive. It doesn't have all these tiles and it is somewhat kind of a little bit based on, <laughs> um, Jonathan Swift's, uh, Gulliver's travels with the Lilliputians. So it's just like a weird mat- mishmash. I don't know why all of a sudden the 18 XX games are like, all right, let's make a roll and write with a cat. Cool. And now we've got we're going to Gulliver's travels with cards and we're building a train system for, for the Lilliputians, <laughs> I guess. Um, but by all accounts, it's a, it's a fairly decent take on that for like an entry level. So it's not 18 XX. It really isn't. Cause there's no tiles, um, but it's not ticket to ride either. It's more complex than that. Sure. So it's like a little in between stage between like, I like train games. I like cube rail stuff and I want 18 XX. Well, well, here's a middle step for you. Mm. That's not, going to break your brain the same way that those other games would makes a lot of sense all right so there's our list until next time anthony this is chris <laughs> and this is anthony and we'll save you all see you at the table take care everyone bye